Preface Forward Intro In middle school, I started reading. Now, I'd been reading since kindergarten. It was dutiful and orderly. Point B followed point A. But something happened in middle school. A perfect alignment of parental support and benign neglect. Now, the parental support came from keeping me stocked in Beverly Cleary, John Belair's The Great Brain Books, and Daniel Pinkwater. Also, Bridge to Terabithia, The Pushcart War, How to Eat Fried Worms, and the parallel universe, one-two mind crack of The Bully of Barkham Street and A Dog on Barkham Street. And then there was the blessed, benign neglect. The neglect grew out of the same support. My mom and dad were both busy, working jobs and trying to raise two kids during uncertain times. In the rush of trying to find something new for me to read, they'd grab something off the shelf at Walden Books after only glancing at the copy on the back. Whoever did a lousy job writing copy for books like Richard Brodigan's The Hawkline Monster, H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountain of Madness, Harlan Ellison's The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World, and Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. It's about a teenager in the future, said my mom. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You gave me some tangy, roiling stew under the golden crust of the young adult literature I was gobbling up. So yes, I still love Belair's The House with the Clock in Its Walls, but I always imagine the two bounty killers from the Hawkline Monster in its basement, armed for bear and fucking the magic child on a rug, and somewhere beyond John Christopher's White Mountains are Vic and Blood hunting for canned food and pussy. And who prowled the outer woods of Terabithia? Yog Sosoth, that's who. It's a gift and an affliction at the same time, constantly wondering how the mundane world I'm living in, or reading about, links to the darker impulses I'm having or imagining I have. The gift affliction followed me, or was it guiding me, through my teens in 1980s suburban Virginia. The local TV station still showed The Wolfman on Saturday mornings, but... I'd already read Gary Bradner's The Howling, so I couldn't watch Lon Chaney Jr. lurch around the Scottish countryside without wondering if he craved sex as much as murder. I would recontextualize lines of sitcom dialogue to suit darker needs, the way the surrealists would obsess over a single title card. Quote, when he crossed the bridge, the shadows came out to meet him, unquote, in the 1922 silent movie Nosferatu. Okay, here comes the first footnote of this book. And this one's a doozy. Nosferatu looms over and lurks under everything I'm writing about here and in this book. I was five years old and living in Tustin Meadows, California, a point on the arc of my dad's military career postings, tracing a backward word balloon over the United States, starting in Virginia, up through Ohio, out to California, and back to Virginia. It was Halloween, and the local library had one of those kids' activity days where we made cookies and cut out jack-o'-lanterns and heard ghost stories. And one of the librarians, with nothing but good intentions, I'm sure, decided to show an eight-millimeter print of Nosferatu against a wall. They blacked out the curtains, and the projector clattered to life and spit out what I'm sure the adults thought would be a harmless old spook show. That movie, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, burst and spread out and filled that little room with jagged, discordant fever mares from across continents and decades. The scariest vampire any of us had seen up to that point was the Count on Sesame Street. We were screaming and bawling our fists up to our chests and wondering how we'd gone from cookies and crafts to a wrinkly rat man spreading contagion across an already blasted landscape like a plague that kills plagues.
No one in that room ever escaped Max Schreck's curly, cursed talons, least of all me. I saw how that flat square of sepia light replaced the hard dimensions around us. I wanted to get on the other side of it. Then the local TV station gave way to the early years of cable TV. My parents' working hours were such that it was impossible to police my viewing habits. Scooby-Doo and his friends unmasked the sea demon and found bitter old man Trevors trying to scare people away from his harbor. But they missed, under the dock, the humanoids from the deep raping sunbathers. Did Harry, the spy, and the boy who could make himself disappear run afoul of Abel Ferrara's Ms. 45, Paul Kersey from Death Wish, or the baseball furies from Walter Hill's The Warriors? The pushcart war took place on the same New York streets where Travis Bickle piloted his taxi. And it sure was cool how the great brain could swindle Parley Benson out of his repeating air rifle by pretending to make a magnetic stick. You know what was better?